Hey, this is Jeff. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and join us at the table as we talk to another great leader about faith, church, and leadership. Welcome to the Leadership Drip. So welcome to the table, Sean. Hey, great to be with you guys. It's an honor. Your reputation precedes you. Uh, billions of downloads. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know what, amen, I don't know what show you're on. Amen but. <laughs> and in Jesus' name. Oh, is that not the show? Prophetic. That's prophetic. Thank you for being prophetic. Hey, Sean. It's so great to have you on the show, man. Uh, listen, your, your bio uh, to get here is not necessarily the typical route uh, that someone would take, but uh, I mean, you've been a, a real estate uh, developer, you've been a mega church pastor and a church planner, and now you're a coach. So, um, so how did you move from this uh, arena of making big deals and closing on real estate to having conversations about Jesus and leadership and life? So kind of give us a little bit of your story. Well, I never wanted to be a pastor. That's for sure. Uh, no one in my family's ever been a pastor. It's not in my lineage. A lot of them have been in prison, but none of them, you know, been pastors. But um, I was teaching a college and career Sunday school class. Do you remember those? Oh, yeah. yeah. And God brought revival to the class, to my church. You know, we just got swept up in an amazing move of God. And I was the top selling real estate agent in the county. Um, my family's been in the real estate business for 50 years. And I walked in two weeks after I won the award to tell my dad I felt like God was calling me into the ministry. And um, he compared me to David Koresh that day. He said even David wow. Koresh thought he was doing God's will. Um, that was a fun really conversation. Well. Yeah. So I made a huge financial sacrifice, you know, took about a 90% pay cut, you know, and went off to seminary, moved to Atlanta to start a church in 1999 and kind of the rest is history, you know, but I, I really, I always felt like an executive trapped in a pastor's body. Mm -hmm. The church grew and we were a mega church within two and a half years, wow. but I felt like it was in spite of my preaching, not because of it. I kind of endured preaching to be able to do the between the Sunday leadership stuff right. and quickly begin to realize most church planters were not wired, you know, that way. So we began coaching church planters first and foremost, um, back in 2001, you know, so this, this month marks about 20 years. I've been Goodness. coaching pastors. And well, so I knew I would do it full time one day yeah, and yeah. Ma made the leap about six years ago to do just that. Yeah. So Very you make cool. an interesting point. I, I am, I love the preaching side of it. I'm probably a terrible executive. I like, I know I'm a terrible executive. Let's just be clear about it. Like that part of my leadership is not great. The, the preaching, the teaching, the vision casting is, is really sort of the sweet spot of what I do. So how are you helping leaders who have that tension or are you bringing somebody alongside them who has that skill set? Yeah, it's both. And, you know, our, our, our will set, if you will, is one-on-one -on -one coaching. So we, we tried to pair a, pastor with a coach that complements their strengths mm. you know nothing wrong with being great at preaching the only point at which i disagree with john maxwell and if you really drill down with him on it you won't misunderstand him he says just focus on your strengths mm -hmm. but i've actually never had a pastor or a church say to me what took us down was our strengths yeah <laughs> it's your weakness it's your blind spot it's your achilles heel so we try to put them with a coach that's not just like them that can help them get better in their blind spots, in their weak areas, and the things that could be holding back their ministry to help them bring that up to speed with, with where they are naturally strong. Yeah, we just had a conversation with uh, Arden Brevere recently, and one of the things that we talked about 
on that show was just turning young people loose. So in this in this season of church lo local church ministry that we're experiencing, where so much is digital, this is probably one of the greatest platforms in history for young people to kind of come in and and cover the blind spots of senior leaders who who are not unintelligent, not incapable. It's just yeah. natural, right? Because this is a this is a native native digital generation that that we have at our fingertips and i think sort of that approach is is a is a powerful approach and i think you make a great point about uh helping leaders cover their weaknesses uh either through hiring or through training or through volunteer empowerment whatever the case is but um so this this idea of of coaching uh, and the traits that you have i mean the momentum piece of it is such a huge conversation right uh, how do you get momentum? How do you keep momentum? And there are books by Maxwell, many, many others who write about uh, the big mo, if you want to call it that. So in your experience through coaching, what seems to be the difference maker between those who are getting it done and those who are struggling to get it done? Yeah, to me, it really, that boils down to one word in, in my mind. It's just consistency. Gotcha. You All know, right. the most successful churches I know are ruthlessly consistent. They have a plan. They work their plan. They have a spiritual process, a spiritual pathway. You know, they have a teaching calendar that's taking people on a journey, not just, hey, here's a cool verse out of my quiet time. Let's do a series on it. You know, it's connected to their strategic direction. They're disciplined. They're focused. They're not distracted, you know, by the news and what's going on in the world. They just have their eyes on the prize and they have a lot of discipline around that consistency. The leaders that I see getting stuck are just all over the place, you know, squirrel, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and they're just dist constantly distracted, undisciplined, unfocused. So one of the things we try to do with pastors, Hey, we just need, we need to look at your calendar, your right. personal calendar. Right. Like you guys have got to get more consistent. You got to get better at what you do. Yeah. And you and I have mutual friends uh, at Saddleback Church and where I was on staff and you've been there before. So, you know, you know, Rick, you know, the culture, you know, their dedication and their commitment to their systems. Right. And and that is true. And I can I can state that emphatically. You know, you're talking about uh, leadership and pastors who are struggling to find it being ruthlessly consistent. And I think you're right about um, how how they're struggling to through the distractions, but how much of that do you think is desperation? Desperation to be like other churches who do have it ruthlessly consistent. And how do you handle the desperation piece, not just the distraction piece? Yeah. So I, I think pastors are tempted to always look at the silver bullet, you know, look for the silver bullet. Uh, there is no silver bullet. You know, uh, my friend Larry Osborne, who was also out the West Coast, you know, said, be, be cautious of the new thing. Right. You know, and there, but there's this tendency when a church breaks through, you know, if everybody come out, come go out and grab their thing, you know, of course I attend church of the Highlands now here in Birmingham and we got thousands coming down here and I tell, I love my church, but not every church should try to be just like our church, you right. know, because that, that came out of my pastor's testimony, right. you know, so the guys that I see crushing it are not, they learn from other churches, but they don't try to become a copycat church. Right. They don't try to, they don't have vision schizophrenia and discipleship schizophrenia and worship schizophrenia. Like they, they're learning from other churches, but they know who they are 
and they stay in their lane and they get better at what they do while learning from other churches yeah. versus man, just new small group strategy every 18 months. You know what I'm saying? Which just wears people out, you know, over, and you, you actually lose credibility, you know, so, over time with your leaders. So Sean, tell us, and as, as leaders, how do we go to a place like church of the Highlands, which does a lot of things for ARC and other church planning organizations. Um, how do we go and find the principles and not just the methods? Cause I think what we do is we go see the method and we try to, to duplicate the method and miss the principle. So how do we go to a setting like that or read a book or anywhere and go, okay, I need to extract the principle for our church and implement it, not just the methodology. Well, first, I, you know, I think it comes out of an insecurity of who we are sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I need to get more familiar with my story. You know, Jacob, had a broken story, you know, wrestled with God, walked with a limp, but like God used that story powerfully, you know, and every leader leads with a limp to some degree, right? you know, has wrestled with God to kind of be called into something, you know, and I was just always secure enough in my own skin to be who God called me to be, you know, and, and, and then when you go off and you take your team into a shared experience, like a visit to another church or a conference, Mm -hmm. I think it's important to debrief them in in advance and say, Hey guys, we are not trying to be another plug in the blank church, you know, but we, we we don't want to be critical today and point out everything we don't like about their church. That's pharisaical. What we want to do is kind of sit in the middle and, and honor them you know, for what God's doing through them and not be critical of them and, and say, what, what can I learn from them? Man, in pastor's world, we're so critical of everybody who doesn't think just like us and do it just like us. But as a pastor, man, I just had always had a humble posture. And with our team, like we can learn something from any church, any time, as long as we don't realize we're not trying to copy them yeah, or be yeah. just like them. Yeah, that's good. point. So, this whole church reality that we're that we're huge fans of. Jeff and I both obviously pastoral experience, and uh, even though we're on a college campus now, but still, uh, this is our heart. This is what we do, and I think um, in pastoral ministry, as you, you have learned, as I have learned, as Jeff has learned, a lot of learning. Nobody does this alone, right? And probably one of the great uh, mysteries of successful leadership, successful pastors is the ability to build a team around them that helps them push the vision, carry the DNA, move forward, you know, uh, be in alignment, even if they're not in agreement, all of these things that are, that are realities of great teams. And so uh, what do you see now kind of in our current culture and condition, what are some of those great challenges to building great teams that we're facing and maybe give us some pointers on how we can start overcoming that? Yeah, well, one, the best book I read of 2019 was a corporate book called It's Always the Manager. <laughs> it's always the manager. So one, I've I've got to grow as a leader. I've got to have a personal growth plan. I need a coach because if I'm going to try to surround myself with people smarter than me, they're going to leave me. They're going to sniff me out if I'm not, if I don't have a plan to like get better, yeah. you know, all of that. And then secondly, all, all your great, um, to quote the great, uh, theologian, Nick Saban, <laughs> you know, uh, well, it, it takes at some point on the show, but <laughs> <laughs> it takes both great recruiting and development, yeah. you know, and great X's and O's, you know, to win. So you got, you got to recruit, you got to recruit great talent and you got to develop them. You got to invest into them 
you know, over time. And you've got to objectively assess them. One of the mistakes I see a lot of pastors make, it's kind of the Steve Jobs syndrome, you know, where you got one genius and a bunch of idiots, you know, just a bunch of yes men and yes women. And man, you've got to recruit people who can think critically for themselves and think strategically. Um, there's, there's products and projects, you know, on a church staff. And you need a few, you need a lot of projects, a lot of green people, a lot of inexperienced people, a lot of young people, but you bet they'll, they'll never become products unless you've got a product developing them into that and discipling them and mentoring them and coaching them. So we need three to five stallions, studs around us that are helping us recruit and develop, you know, great talent and giftedness on our team. I think something so critical about that point, though, is when we say three to five stallions or studs, we often think those have to be hires. In my experience as a pastor, especially in a, in a system like, like I was at Saddleback, we were always very encouraged to find the studs and the stallions that are sitting in the audience, the attorneys who have perspectives that we don't, the business, the highly successful multimillionaires and billionaires who view things differently than what, what we do. So your studs and your stallions may not necessarily be hires. Hundred percent, hundred percent. In fact, there should be a balance. Exactly. I'm, I'm a big fan of having some guys with marketplace experience in our think tank. Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So I think we need to overcome that fear of of recruiting the people who are sitting right. in front of us to be at the highest levels of leadership in our churches, in our congregations, and in our. It's world. a typical Moses argument, Rob. I hear it all the time. Yeah. Well, we, don't, we don't really have the money, you know. Well, we're in a blue collar town. I'm like, well, go out and find how many people are in your city, how many people are in your state, how many people have you pastored in your past that live in another state. Yeah. Go get them. Ask them to move. Sell their home. <laughs> Ask them to be a missionary with you yeah. and come and change the world. Yeah. Well, and I think that's that's always. I was in youth ministry for a while and I have a heart for those going into youth ministry. And it feels like the, the comment is um, need a youth pastor, no pay will pay as we grow. Like, like they're recruiting them like with this negative sort of like, we're not going to give you anything now, but if you grow this thing, I'm going to give you some money. Yeah. I don't think that's the best recruiting method, Sean. How do, how do we take even in small churches and recruit people, great people into our church to help it grow? Well, a great test is first, you know, starting with somebody who's in the marketplace and, you know, ask them for eight or 10 hours a week and see how it goes, you know, just a vetting, a, a vetting out process, you know, for a filter. We, mm -hmm. you know, in the marketplace, they say hire slow and fire fast. In yes. the church, we do right the opposite. We hire fast and fire too slow. And we, we've got to kind of reverse that trend, be a little bit more selective you know, in, in our selection process and then man, re recognizing it's not a fit a little bit faster so we can get somebody in the right seat at the right time. Yeah. 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 That's good. Yeah. I I'm, I'm all for that model of, of higher, slow, fire, fast. Uh, I, I think it, it weighs out in terms of building team chemistry, building team competency, getting yourself in the right position to have the most success and whatever it is you're doing. So I'm a huge fan of that. So part of that process then is actually moving people into the right seats. John Gordon. Right. So you might, you, when, when you, when you evaluate and you study your, your leadership structure or your, or your team, you may realize that you have someone on your team who's a great fit for the organization, but necessarily a great fit in that role. And so one of the, 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 uh, the hard conversations we often have to have is, Hey, 
I love you. I think you're supposed to be here, but I think you need to be doing X, Y, and Z. So how do you do that in such a way as you, I'm not sure that you can always get away from upsetting or offending, but how do you do that in such a way that you keep the relationship intact? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, it's the number one responsibility of a leader is to be the culture architect. Mm-hmm. We've got to design the culture that we want to build, you know, and culture happens by design or by default. So every day we've got to get up and build that culture. So we're trying to create a culture of change and instead of entitlement, you know, the word title is in the middle of entitlement Yeah, where we're not defined by our titles and the goal is more important than the role. So just normalizing language on the front end, you know, Andy Stanley was kind of one of my coaches there for a season. And he said, Sean, when I hire somebody, I go ahead and tell them on the front end, you know, hey, you will not be doing what you're doing two years from now. I just go ahead and set that expectation. Right. Either you're going to grow and develop and hire people to do what you're doing, or if you don't grow, somebody will be leading you and, and doing that job. So you get to choose. Yeah. And it just right. Wow. You know, yeah. whoa, the clock is ticking, you know, I, so, but it set expectation for me that I'm going to be, I'm going to be moved around, you know, right. I'm going to be changed. The other thing I would say is that a bit, this is a drum I beat. This is a little bit controversial, but hear me out. Okay. I'm not a huge fan of spiritual gift inventory tests. Okay. Uh, somehow the book of Acts got by without those, you know, and it worked for them. How, how did they identify people's spiritual gifts? They didn't go off by themselves and assess their own giftedness in a notebook. Okay. Have you guys seen the early episodes of American Idol? We are not great assessors of our own giftedness on an Island. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We, We don't know ourselves as well as we think we do. And we get this at the top level. Like when, when a young man feels called to ministry, there's an ordination process a licensing process where that church says, yeah, you, st- you tell us you've heard from God and you got the gift of pastoring, but we're going to help you cement that or ratify that or tell you, you know, you're not ready, you know? And I think in every layer of ministry, there's a need to say, Hey, I want to hear from you what you think you're gifted at, but as your spiritual leader, I want you to know, we speak into that and help ratify that. You know, you don't have the gift of teaching as much as you think you do yet. I'm right. just saying, yeah. you know what, for example. Yeah, no, that's good. And so, so then what's the responsibility of the leadership then? How, and maybe how is a better question to foster that conversation? Like it, with a young person coming into leadership, like, cause they, they, I was 21 and thought a lot of myself, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say I didn't like, so how do we navigate that to help them process through that into where they're going next? Yeah. So just, I, I think setting the culture of expectation, my friend, Matt Keller, you guys have probably had him on. I know Matt. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I coached them years ago. He went on to write a book on this later called the key to everything. You know, okay. the key to the key to everything is coachability. Yeah. So mm-hmm. just having that, having that conversation at the very outset, Hey, just so you know, we're a coaching culture. You know, if you're defensive, average players don't like to be coached, leave me alone. So let me go out there and do, do it the way I want to do right. it. Elite players run back over to the sidelines and say, hey, coach, what, what can I do better? You know, and having that conversation, one, you'll spit some people out. They say, well, that's not me. I, I want to be left alone. You know, you hear student pastors say, why don't they just leave me alone? Let me do my job. Well, that, that, no, that's not the kind of culture we have here. <laughs> we, 
Iron sharpens iron. One friend sharpens another. So here you're going to get heat and friction applied to your life. Yeah. Because we're your friend and we care about you. Right. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. An enemy multiplies kisses. We don't multiply kisses on our team. Like we're go- we wound each other to make each other better because we care about each other. That's how we roll. And I've got to set the tone and receive that. I can't be a defensive senior leader, you know, and I've got to help sort of model that, but then also just really hold everybody accountable to that. And if they get their hackles up, they get defensive, you know, challenge them on that. Because if you get defensive when somebody's trying to speak into your life, you've just forfeited your best opportunity to get better. Yeah. Deep in the quarantine season of this past of 2020, um, I binge watched The Last Dance. Did you watch that? Yes. And what's interesting about the conversation about the best players is, is Phil Jackson had to step in and eventually convince Michael Jordan to change entire offensive systems. Like, because Michael was the man before Phil Jackson got there. Yeah. Um, and so he comes in and, and gets this non-selfish system, right? And we know the, we know the history from there. They go on with six titles. What's interesting about it is suddenly Michael Jordan becomes the biggest cheerleader of the offensive system. The guy who didn't want it and was pushing against it early, when he sees that it works, becomes the biggest cheerleader. Yeah. And so I think that's what you're saying, Sean, is that when we can win over those who have been maybe opposed to our, to this, this coachability idea, I think it, it really pushes everything forward. Yeah. I have pastors, you know, call me all the time or we're in a coaching relationship with, and they're like, man, every time I try to talk to this guy, it gets defensive, you know, with the team, we're walking on eggshells around him. And my first question is always, have you told him that? <laughs> Have you told her that 99 out of a hundred times they'll say, well, no, you know, you know, which is, which is why a lot of churches stop growing. Here's the reason why most churches stop growing. They choose to, Mm. they choose not to have the conversations that are critical for breakthrough. Right. And go to that pastor, go to that director, go to that deacon or elder and say, Hey, I don't know if you're aware of this. Okay. But every time we try to press in a little bit on you, like, man, you are instantly defensive and it makes people not want to approach you, you know, and I'm telling you, I've had that conversation dozens of times. I've got pastors who've said I've helped God use me to save their marriages, you know, because it's, it's not just showing up on their staff. It's showing up in their marriages. It's showing up in their, in their, you know, ministry downstream, all of that. If they're a defensive, insecure leader. Yeah. Yeah. In the leadership courses I teach here at Lee, I never leave that course without talking about, you can never lead at the highest level if you can't have the hard conversations. And this is not, this is not about our biblical values or our theological position or being Jesus to other people. Jesus clearly challenged his teams. He challenged people who are outside of his teams, obviously Pharisees or whoever. Right. So, so I think, I think we have to get over this fear or this this mental sort of hurdle that we have that we can't have difficult conversations and still love. In fact, the difficult conversations are love, right? They're yeah. Right. I, t- I tell leaders, Jesus was full of grace and truth. Right. Yeah. Right. So some of us are more naturally, I'm more naturally a truther. <laughs> so before I have a conversation with somebody, I need to kind of run it by a gracer and my wife's going to say, Honey, I'm whatever you do, don't say it like that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a gracer. I'm a, the Lord loves you. Yeah, and the gracers need to stretch the honest muscle. And there are a lot of pastors, just because the lineage and heritage and 
some misunderstandings of who Jesus is, mm-hmm. frankly, you know, yeah. where we've valued nice over honesty. Yeah. And yeah. we'll go home and say something to our spouse about a pastor that we're not willing to say to that pastor. Yeah. And a commitment I made to my team, you know, nearly 20 years ago now, we've coached this to thousands of leaders, is that I, I will never, I, I've promised all my team for 20 years, I will never go home and say something to my spouse about you I'm not willing to say to you. Yeah. And guess what I expect from you? Which means we may have more robust dialogue, Patrick Lencioni calls it, intense fellowship, I call it, yeah. you know, but we're going to understand each other better. And there's an integrity that comes with that and a respect because we've got each other, each other's backs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if yeah. you, Lencioni, Cotter, Shine, whoever you look at, I mean, they're all saying the same thing from an organizational perspective. In order for you to have a healthy organization, you have to be able to have these challenging conversations, right? It is the impediment, I think, a lot of times to growth. It's the impediment a lot of times to what we define um, as success, whatever that may mean. And we're going to talk about that in just a second with your most recent book. But the ability to have these hard conversations, especially right now in a cultural context where everything is being readjusted and reassessed. It's the perfect time to have these conversations because it makes sense. Don't just go back from the pandemic the way you were because you have the opportunity here to stretch yourself well beyond what you ever could have imagined if you're willing to have these difficult conversations. Rob, are you a grace or truth guy? I'm I'm a kind of a hybrid, like really. I, I, I don't know. That's see, that's sort of a cop out for me. But <laughs> but I can be extremely blunt, right? Yes, that's true. Or that's I true. can, or I can be, or yeah. I can peddle the conversation way too long. I don't know. It, there's a I don't know if that's as, him, as a that guy is, that's all, often aired on Grace, which is which is my my side. Um, what I've had to learn is that truth is not a bad thing. Right. Like, like delivering truth and having hard conversations usually leads to better relationships. Like you talk about trust and those things. So as leaders, you're, you're clearly going to fall on one side or the other. Most of us are not in the middle as a grace guy. You've got to take that. What feels like a major risk, like feels like I'm going to crush somebody. Yep. So we have to have the hard conversation. And usually at the end of the hard conversation comes a better outcome. Right. Now, not always, but but usually a better outcome. Yeah, it's very true. Very true. Well, let's jump into your most recent book, uh, Measuring Success, and um, uh, let, let's talk about this for a moment because I think success is one of those cuss words in local church ministry uh, because it's something we all desire. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a. Uh, I think there's a a godly sort of ambition that's healthy, right? Nothing wrong with success how you measure success is different, how you determine and define success is yet even more different. So kind of walk us through uh, your book, Measuring, uh, measuring Success, and, and kind of what you see uh, as a moving target for many leaders who are trying to find it. Yeah, well, I, you know, there's this several debates that go on. You know, one is the debate between faithfulness and fruitfulness. And I get lit up sometimes on social media about what I post on leadership and organizational health and all of that. We just need to preach the gospel. We just need to be faithful to the gospel. And, you know, but there are a lot of churches being buried that are preaching theologically correct messages. Mm -hmm. You know, faithfulness is not enough. It's faithfulness and fruitfulness. Jesus expects us to bear fruit. And they're fruits of the spirit. 
they're fruits of conversions. And if a church is not growing, it is quietly dying. Yeah. And so there's got to be a compulsion and an unction to see the needle move. Like we've got to hold ourselves accountable for producing fruit, seeing lost people saved. If we're not, what are we doing? Right. You know, yeah. so it's yeah. not great commission or great commandment. It's both. It's both. I'm for the great commission, but not at the expense of the great commandment. You know, yeah. where these where these pastors are falling right and left, you know, is where you emphasize one or the other out, out, out of balance. You know, if, if you if you pursue church growth at the expense of church health, you know, you you get out of center, you get out of rhythm yourself. So I say in defining success in my book, Measuring Success, the success is being loved and respected by those closest to us. You know, it's my, it's my wife, it's my family, it's my team, you know, it's my leaders, it's my church first. You know, I ran a coaching organization for 16 years side by side, along with being senior pastor of the church, but it never really affected our church growth. My first priority was always Jerusalem. Yeah. My first priority, you know, was always my family. Right. My first priority was always my team you know, not being liked on Facebook or Instagram, you know, nothing wrong with all that. That comes second, third, fourth down the line. So it's just a discipline to make sure we keep our eyes on the prize and not let the pendulum swing so far in our mind one way or another. Yeah. So, so unpack that for us, this idea of being loved and respected, because there's a lot of definitions around that. So as you see it, and that being the mark of success, um, how do you define those two words then? Yeah. Well, one, I got the, I tell pastors all the time, every pastor is an interim pastor. Mm -hmm. You're all going to leave your church. So what is your identity? You know, people ask me, how are you able to hand off the church and just kind of seamlessly go into coaching? I think it helped me to have a prior marketplace experience before becoming pastor. So my identity was never Sean pastor. It was Sean, who happens to be a pastor for this season in his life, you know, and now can hand because my identity was never pastor. So being secure in your own skin, you know, is really important there. But then it is being disciplined to spend more time with those closest to you. You do a study in the Gospels of all the times Jesus is trying to get away from people. <laughs> Actually stiff arming the crowds yeah. to mm -hmm. be with the few, yeah. you know. And I think leaders need to do that more. And I got to hand off my church, not when I was 75, but when I was 45. Right. Yeah. And here's what becomes even more an acknowledgement on your part, that if you finish well at all, you'll really finish with one team, mm. your family. That's able. And the people that you've developed and invested into. And I, you know, I've got ex staff members that hate me like every pastor, you know, mm -hmm. but I, some most of my best friends are pastors who worked for me formerly. Yeah. You know, and if that sounds like I'm boasting about that, I'm boasting about that. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. Because somehow I ordered my life and lived in such a way that they feel like they can be my friend when I'm not their boss. And, you and know? Not the common story. I think a lot of times when staff leave, there's almost a detachment. Like I'm detaching from all those people in that culture, in that environment, and then we put all kinds of negative labels on it. It was toxic. It was whatever. Um, but I think it's valuable to be able to leave a place and go, those are still my people. 
Um, and those are still my family or my, my, you know, my mentors, my friends, um, because I don't think that's very common in the church right now. Hey, yeah. And I tell leaders all the time. I mean, if you want to surround yourself, people smarter than you, they won't, I need to do that. I'm from Alabama. Okay. We're 48th on every list. Thank God for Mississippi and Louisiana. Okay. So I've always needed to surround myself with people smarter than me. So that means people are not going to follow me because I'm smarter than them. Yeah. So how do you get people smarter than you to follow you? You have to be healthier than they are. Mm -hmm. And you have to care about them more than they care about you. That's the gospel, isn't it? I mean, that's the gospel. And, and if you do that, then really, really brilliant people will leave large ministries to come work for you because you care about them, because you're not a transactional leader. Right. And you're not just using them to get ministry done. It gives you a literal competitive advantage <laughs> in yeah. the hiring mar marketplace of ministry. And it is competitive out there to find great people you know, that you're going to be a leader that spends time with your team, develops them, invests them, cares about them as human beings, not human doings. Man, you look back a few years later and you got all these amazing leaders wanting to come be a part of what you're doing. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I'm probably going to tweet out that one statement at some point today. <laughs> I mean, that, You'll be tagged so on good. Twitter. Yeah. Um, so you're obviously in the consulting world. You've done a ton of it over 20 years, obviously been quote unquote successful in many capacities. Um, and one of the real trendy things to learn and talk about, um, at least here in the States, again, we're all obviously in American context, but mm -hmm. is this uh, church growth strategy, church growth movement, church growth ideas, programs, which I'm books, a fan of. I think that books, conferences, like I think there's a lot of amazing content out there uh, that aids and supports local church leadership and church growth. Uh, I think from a local church perspective, one of the things, and we've kind of talked about this already, that's difficult is going to a conference and walking away more frustrated than what you came with, right? So yeah, because you can't actually do some of the things that you see or you hear, or it's not scalable yeah. or whatever. So church growth as a topic has been kind of trending the last decade or so, especially. Um, and so what are your perspectives on the church growth movement? I mean, where is it at right now? Where do you see it going? Give us some, give us some inside uh, kind of intel on that. Well, it's the only point at which I've disagreed with you today, Rob. Okay. <laughs> because the church growth movement is not two decades old. It's two millennia old. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I stand corrected. Okay. Acts chapter 247, the church grows daily. Acts 4, 4, the church grows to 5,000 men. Acts chapter 5, verse 14, multitudes are added to the church regularly. Acts chapter 6, the disciples select leaders over care ministries so they can focus on the Great Commission. On and on and on and on. So we, I think, man, there needs to be a course correction out there in terms of what we call the church growth movement. Right. I think we begin to kind of recover you know, and swing the pendulum two decades ago where the focus had kind of been back on the faithfulness side instead of the fruitfulness side. Right. We're like, hey, but we're not baptizing people, you know, through water baptism. We're not seeing people get saved. And we've got to, we got to value lost people more, you know, and we've got to change how we're doing things to, to position ourselves to connect with unbelievers in our worship services. All that's been a really, really good thing. We just got to be careful once again, we don't run way out here, you know, on the great commission end of things and pursue growth at the expense of health. That's, right. we talk about the three gears of growth. 
at, at Courage to Lead, culture, team, and systems. So we, we talk about positioning and preparing our ministry for growth. You don't presume on growth. You get prepared for growth. Right. And you grow in a healthy way. So it's like the widow in Second Kings and the jars of oil. You know, when did the miracle stop? When the number of prepared jars ran out. You know, I tell pastors, like, if your team is overwhelmed with anxiety now, why would Jesus send 100 new people? It'd crush you. One thing we know, he's not going to send us more people than we can handle. Yeah. I don't know how large Jesus wants to grow our church, but I know he's not going to grow it more than we can handle. Mm-hmm. So what we need to posture ourselves to do is get positioned and prepared to be a church that can handle more. And I think a lot of pastors are praying, Jesus, grow our church, grow our church, grow our church. And Jesus saying, get better, get better, get better, get better. And I, then I can trust you with more. Then I can send some new people your way and you'll be good stewards of them. And it won't crush you. It won't crush your team. It won't crush your leadership. It won't cause you to lose your marriage you know, because you're overextended and you're not able to handle it. So that that's the really the value of coaching is working on us and working on our team and working on our culture and working on our structure, working on our systems, working on our process. And then one day you have these overnight successes where Jesus goes, now they're ready. Right. Now they're ready and revival breaks out. Yeah. So to your point, which I think is obviously true, um, I feel like we're shifting from this church growth movement, which was kind of the emphasis of the question into a church health movement, which I think is a, 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 I don't want to say just a better, but it's a, a more biblically aligned sort of approach, Christ centered approach to being healthy leaders, healthy local churches, more than quote successful or growing. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Anybody can draw a crowd, right? I mean, you can be a great speaker, very charismatic. You can build a crowd, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're healthy. Very true. Uh, I think I think moving from that um, numbers based again, God counted numbers, so that's important. But moving from that being the emphasis to church health becoming, or leadership health, or volunteer health, or organizational health becoming sort of the emphasis. I think that's the the trending direction that I see. That I think I'm a big fan of. I agree. I'm with you, my friend. So so in this friend. in this sort of position and prepared to handle more, you, you talked about that and. Um, that we are have we have greater capacity. Use the the Second Kings passage. More jars. What's the first step for a leader, for a pastor, to bring in more jars to be ready for more? Yeah. So we tell pastors it's it's okay to set scoreboard oriented goals. That's actually a good start. You know, hey, what 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 would we love to believe God for? What does that look like? You know, but then break it down into process oriented goals. So if we, you know, if we want to say, hey, let's just get positioned and prepare where we might could handle 100 more people. You know, well, we need 10 new small group leaders. we got to break it down that far. You know, we need 10, we need to recruit 10 new small group leaders, have them trained, deployed, prepared, ready, you know, for a potential growth season mm-hmm. this fall. You know, and how many, chi- how many, chi- that's going to be 30% of those are going to be children. So how many, how many children's leaders, new children's leaders are, are we going to need? You know, that's going to be about 50 more cars on our campus. You know, do we have a plan? Yeah, right. <laughs> fit, you know, so it's, it's, it's getting our infrastructure, getting those empty jars prepared. So when the oil starts flowing, 
we don't go, oh no, I wish we'd had more jars. You know, yeah. uh, we, we want to be, we, we don't know what God's going to do, but let's get positioned and prepared for whatever God wants to do. Yeah. It, yeah. it seems like a delineation between leading and chasing. Like, so if I'm leading, I'm out in front getting prepared. If I'm chasing, it feels like I'm just running crazy trying to gather true after the fact. Yeah. True. True. Craig Go- Groeschel talks about initiating, not reacting. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 too many pastors like react all the time instead of, hey, let's get off campus, let's plan this out, let's drill it down into the details of what we really need to do to get postured and prepared to 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 do more. And I think part of the sad reality is, is a lot of our pastors don't even know how to take that step. It's true. They don't know how to plan. Yeah. They don't know how to prepare. They don't know what a strategic uh, plan is. They don't know how to do uh, assessments and organizational assessments. And, uh, you know, that's part of the discussions that we've had on the show, even even here being on a Christian college campus, academically driven, our pastoral ministries program, which we both graduated from, Mm -hmm. which we both love which we both are huge fans of, but are we churning out leaders in the pastoral roles that are able to do a strategic plan? Are they able to do, uh, you know, those kind of, so that's a huge challenge in and of itself is helping our leaders understand what that means and how to even take that first step. And then it's like making a budget. You know, you get out there, you you create a budget. Most people don't live on a budget because you hit a wall, the refrigerator breaks down, you throw the whole plan out. You know, Harvard Business Review says 91% of strategic plans fail. So it's one of the values of coaching, you know, to have hold a leader's hand and hold them accountable to not giving up on the plan. Right. You know, creating the plan is about 10% of the work. Then we've got to go out and kind of hold ourselves accountable. And if we hit some walls, we hit some resistance to tweak, but not retreat and keep pressing and following through. That's, that's where that consistency comes full circle. Yeah. Right. And I think uh, one of the things that we, we talk about a lot is, a, a system can be just as anointed and holy as a spontaneous move of God. And I think we've got to sort of be able to elevate both conversations um, uh, better, right? There's, yeah. there's a lack of balance, I think, especially coming from this, this Pentecostal sort of uh, movement that we're a part of. We, we love the spontaneity of the spirit, the move of the uh-huh. spirit, which uh-huh. we appreciate deeply and we, we, we love deeply. But there's also a, a holiness to order there's a holiness to systems. It's both. Once again, it's both, right? It's not spontaneity or order. Exactly. It's both. And if I'm more spontaneous in nature, I probably need to work on a little bit of the order. If I'm more ordered in nature and I'm a control freak, that's me. You know, I need to work a little bit more and giving the Holy Spirit some room, right? you know, in my life and in our services and in our meetings and, you know, all of that. So it's, it's, it's both. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Obviously, Sean, we're in a, a season where church has shifted dramatically. Um, gathering is hard. Getting together is difficult. Um, online church, everybody went online last March in some form or fashion. Um, how are you helping pastors sort of measure engagement at this point? Well, first, I just want to champion pastors that are watching, listening, you know, today. Church just had the most innovative year it's had <laughs> maybe in 2000 years. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't think we were up to the task. We had many private freak out moments, but the lion's share of churches we've worked with, though it hasn't been perfect, no leader knew what to do unless they were leading in 1918 during the last pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> right. But the church innovated 
uh, with amazing, amazing, you know, in, you know, ease compared even to marketplace, a lot of marketplace organizations, right? Like, man, we, we, we made huge sweeping changes quick and quickly re-engage people. So I just want to say, you know, pastor, don't get down on yourself because you look online and see somebody doing it better than you today. A lot of you are better. You're a lot better. You're a lot positioned to connect with unbelievers in the digital space than you were a year ago. We just right. got to continue down that, down that path. You know, probably one of the areas I see that's a, a need for pastors to recognize we've gone online with our services. Okay. So we're allowing everybody to engage on Sunday. We've really got to take that worship service experience on Sunday an hour, hour and a half in nature and realize not everybody has that attention span. Not everybody's going to tune in in that medium and say, okay, how do we kind of slice that up and, and create seven day a week engagement? Hmm. It, and, and, you know, for example, you can, you can slice up that sermon into three minute versions mm-hmm. and, you know, drip that out on social media and into your email list and maybe then move them to take, you know, the next step, you know, by what you're saying. And it, it's, it's not about, it's not about quantity. It's about quality for too long. Churches said, Hey, come to this, attend this. We want you to show up at this. Well, we, we can't do that right now. Right. You know? So really what we need to do is add value, add value, add value, add value. And that's going to drive up engagement over time. Um, and it, as we do that, it's going to really cause people to want to come yeah. and be, be more involved, take the next step. Yeah, man, Sean, I, uh, I really hate to, to kind of wrap up the show here, but we are getting close to time and we certainly want to respect yours. Uh, first of all, it's just been a joy because Jeff and I, we love these kinds of conversations. We want to have them often, but I, I do, hope, we have I do hope we get to see you on campus at some point here at Lee university. And I do hope we get to stay connected to you. Um, but we do like to ask every guest on the show, a final question. And uh, that final question is, uh, what is one lesson you learned in college that did not take place in the classroom? Well, I, you know, somehow God planted the seed in me that I was not smart enough on my own to do this and not wise enough on my own. And best decisions I made early on was to reach out and find me some coaches in my life. You know, I've had great, great coaches. I mean, it's a, it's a who's who list, you know, from Rick Warren to Larry Osborne, you know, to Dan Ryland, who was John Maxwell's executive pastor for right. years, Sam Chan, Andy Stanley. Like I've swung for the fence, my guys, you know, and I tell leaders all the time, if you're hearing me speak and you're like, I've heard that somewhere before, I guarantee it. I've never had an original thought. Yes. Everything I know, I learned from my coach, but guess what? The number one mistake I see pastors make is isolation. Mm. Sunday's always coming, you know, number one, the tyranny of the urgent and pride goes before a fall. You know, we're afraid to kind of open up and admit everything's not okay with us and yeah. with the church and all that. But I just was willing to be vulnerable and put myself in those coaching relationships and be a sponge. It's made all the difference in our ability to just keep busting through walls, you know, and I've never had a train wreck, <laughs> you know, and, um, and I'm better for it you know, because I'm in this. So I just think every leader needs a coach. Yeah. That's amazing. That's Very cool. Sean, where can we stay connected with you at? Courage to lead.com at Sean Lovejoy one on Facebook and Instagram. 
Awesome. Awesome. This has been a master class of leadership. Um, so I, I don't know where we send our bill, but our, <laughs> our payment for it, but um, we'll, we'll make sure we take care of that. But we've enjoyed having at the table. And as we always say here at the Leadership Drip, you have a seat at the table. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Hey friends, thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Drip. We loved having you at the table for this conversation. Would you do us a favor and comment, rate, subscribe, and share on your social media? That way we can get this content to other great leaders. And stay connected with us on Instagram at The Leadership Drip and on Twitter at Leadership Drip. And remember, you have a seat at the table.